the college and young adult ministry here, um, which is just a huge privilege for us. I'm just one more minute. Okay, we're in Luke 12, uh, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Sorry to disappoint, I'm not Brandon, but we do have the words today. My name's Clark, if you don't know me, I'm the student pastor. Um, We are going to be looking as Kate read in Luke 12. So let me pray real quick and we'll get going. God, I just thank you so much for your body. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for you. God, I just ask that you would submit our, uh, have our hearts submit to you. Uh, that we would be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, that you would remove obstacles so that we can hear from you um, and just be encouraged, convicted, and ultimately grow and glorify you more. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, entitled the sermon today, The Deeper Issues of the Heart. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle with the idea of like, oh, I know what I got, I'm, I know what I'm doing. You know, you can be quiet. Uh, one, one time when I was uh, in high school, uh, my friend and I got into blacksmithing. Um, I love blacksmithing, wish I had time to do that kind of thing, currently don't for various reasons. Uh, but I, I made my own forge, homemade forge, like dug out like a pipe and made this round thing in the ground and had another pipe going in for air. It was, all, it was really neat. It was the first time I was using my own forge. I was really excited, but, ah, oh, I don't have any lighter fluid to start the forge. I know what I'll do. I'll use gasoline. <laughs> and my lovely little sister, uh, Corinne, was standing there and being the voice of reason. She's like, Clark, I don't think you should do that. I'm like, it'll be fine. I, I I'm a guy, I play with fire all the time. So I sprinkled a little gasoline on the charcoal. And of course, you know, it's just a little breezy. So, you know, I tried to light it and throw a match and it just kept on going out before it hit the, uh, the, the gasoline. So I was like, well, I'll just get a little bit closer. Try it again. Not so good. Well, I'll get a little bit closer. And I seared off all the hair that was on my face and, like, everything around here. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, we think we know what we're doing. Even if we hear a reasonable voice of wisdom, we're like, nah, I got this. 
In Jesus' time, and if you kind of read through the Gospels, you see this coming up again and again, uh, people that were interacting with Jesus, especially the Jewish people, especially the Jewish leaders, generally thought like they were good with God. And today we're going to come to a conversation that he has with somebody in the crowd to show the foolishness of that thinking. The main point of the sermon is this, and you can write this down uh, if you are taking notes. The foolish controlling desire for stuff robs us of real life in God's kingdom. Say that again. The foolish controlling desire for stuff robs us of real life in God's kingdom. We'll see this in three ways. First, we'll see this in Jesus' warning. Second, in Jesus' explanation. And third, Jesus' correction. So first, Jesus' warning. Second, Jesus' explanation. And lastly, Jesus' correction. So first, let's look at Jesus' warning in verses 13 through 15. Uh, We find Jesus um, in our passage right now. He is going to Jerusalem. Starting back around uh, in chapter 9, verse 51-ish, we see that Jesus is now making his way to Jerusalem. And as he's going to Jerusalem, he's encountering different people. He's teaching. He's um, responding. He's getting threats. Uh, All these different things are happening. And what you notice is that many, if not all the Jewish leaders that were interacting with Jesus assumed this fact that God was on their side. The crowds and the Jewish leaders thought they they were good and they rested and felt safe in their privileged status of being God's chosen people. Now, we see this throughout the Gospels playing out. For instance, uh, later on in Luke, we'll come to a parable of a religious leader and a sinner, both going before God and praying. As you might know from uh, Luke 17, the religious leader, um, you know, thought really well of himself. He's like, I am so thankful that I'm not a sinner like this guy. And then the sinner wouldn't even look up and was broken over his sin. And Jesus made the point that these two men both walked away, but only the sinner left justified or right in God's eyes. As we read through the Gospel of Luke, and get a fuller sense of who Jesus is and what he loves, we start to see that he really hates, I mean, really hates when people are inconsistent. He deeply cares about consistency, honesty, and most importantly, I think, humility. One of the ways we see this is when we go back to our previous chapter in chapter 11, Uh, Starting around verse 37, uh, the Pharisees got very angry with Jesus because uh, he wouldn't wash his hands in the way that uh, the Jewish leaders of old would prescribe. 
Uh, Jesus points this out in different ways, that they were more concerned about the commandments of men than the commandments of God. And at this point in chapter 11, Jesus snaps. They criticize Jesus for not following their man-made traditions. So Jesus basically lights into them. And he shows them their hypocrisy. See, Jesus hates man-made, surface-level religiosity. You see, the Pharisees and the lawyers acted like they were godly, and they said good things, but they fell for the classic blunder of legalism. Now, legalism is a loaded term, but I think if you want to kind of cut through a lot of the verbiage, legalism is basically focusing on the outwards of keeping rules and not worrying about the heart underneath. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is more primarily concerned with where our heart is than where our actions are. Now, right heart leads to right actions, but you can act like right things and you can be way off, okay? Um, Jesus does not want uh, people to just religiously serve him. Um, If you, you kind of see this through Genesis and Revelation, God is not aiming at mere behavioral modification. God is always aiming at the heart. God hates people who, quote, do religious things, look down on others, and then totally neglect God in their heart. And Jesus, out of the love for his disciples, and the love for the crowd, I would say, warns them not to fall in this hypocrisy that the Jewish leaders um, had in their life. Not to focus on the shallow outside. These religious leaders diligently followed the Old Testament law with tithing, for example, and they made sure all their spices were tithed just right, but Jesus pointed out that they missed the weightier matters of the law, mainly love and justice. And Jesus is warning and showing us that we have to be on guard and careful that we do not fall into this trap of hypocrisy. And what is specifically warning in our pastors today to the crowd is not to give in to the foolish, controlling desire of greed or covetousness. This hypocrisy uh, brought great dismay to Jesus, to put it lightly. Because what was happening is the religious leaders were doing it, and as they were doing it, they were modeling it to others. You see later on in Luke, that Jesus kind of said, if I would just spread my wings and gather you. And he was talking to the leaders, and it's this idea of like the leaders, the shepherds of Israel were leading the people astray. And we see that here in somebody's comment in the crowd. And this comment and this request reveals this man's heart. Look down at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother 
to divide the inheritance with me. Now let's break this down. The request from the crowd, from this person, apparently uh, this person feels like there's been some kind of injustice. We haven't been given a lot of details, but this person seems to be in need. Maybe he feels like he's been uh, shorted by his uh, brother. Uh, There's some kind of dispute, and he needs help from Jesus. At least that's how he sees it. See, the guy was asking for his inheritance. You know, when there's an inheritance to be had, it usually means somebody's died. So think about this. His parent, probably his father, has died, and he comes to Jesus because he feels like he needs this money. Now, we don't know all the motivating factors and all the details leading up to this question, but Jesus' response shows us the danger that this person in the crowd has fallen into. You know, one of my favorite passages is from Proverbs 20, verse 5, and it says this, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. See, there's a, there's a problem when we come to humans, and hopefully, we, you know, we learn this in life. We are complex people. You know, the worst thing that you can do is just assume what somebody's believing or thinking. You know, we all have different backgrounds, different beliefs, different pressures, different things that are happening. And if we focus on all these differences, sometimes it feels overwhelming, and maybe people are just too complex to figure out. Yet the Proverbs tell us somebody who is wise and understanding knows how to draw out the purposes of the heart. And we see this, how Jesus does this, with his insightful response. Look down at verse 14. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Have you ever experienced someone telling you something about their lives to gain sympathy or support? Like, oh, I, my back is hurting and they're just trying to get sympathy. Now, it's fine to share those things and even get sympathy. Well, this may not be inherently wrong. What we see here is Jesus is starting to point that there is an ulterior motive that is this guy that this guy is guilty of. I'm coming now. The question is: maybe sometimes we come with ulterior motives to Jesus. You see, here we have a guy in the crowd telling Jesus, I need help. I need you to get on my bandwagon, get on my side, so I can get money. See, this man felt like his greatest problem in his life was his monetary situation. And in classic Jesus fashion, he responds completely, totally contradictory to what the audience thought he would respond. You see, um, in the day, you would notice that he said, teacher, the guy said, Jesus, teacher, this is kind of like there's an idea of like there's rabbis or teachers and they had followings and gatherings and how they kind of like build up prestige, build up uh, street cred, if you will, um, is that they would hear p- people come to them, 
uh, give them a problem, and they will give them you know, biblical wisdom and show them how the law applies. And through that, they can kind of build a platform, if you will. They can build their influence that way. But Jesus' priorities are very different than what the world's priorities are. We see in verse 13, the man in the crowd addresses Jesus as teacher, but Jesus wants him to learn something far more important. Jesus is like, listen, I am no judge. Now, Jesus being God, he could judge perfectly and give perfect um, justice to the situation. But what Jesus knew, and what we need to know today, that this man's problem was not primarily his situation. This man's problem was primarily his heart. Jesus could address the problem and give justice. But his situation, this guy in the crowd situation, his problem would not be fixed with money. Look down at verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. After hearing this verse, let me ask you, according to what Jesus just said, what was this man in danger of? Was he in danger of getting material gain? Was he in danger of having money? We need to be really careful and really precise and understanding Jesus' words here. What this man was in danger of was jealousy and greed. He was in danger of making stuff his God. You see, covetousness or greed is idolatry. In Colossians 3, 5, we read this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, in our context, it may seem odd to talk about idolatry for some of us because, you know, we don't live in a society that's filled with uh, temples that have stone uh, gods in them, or wood gods, or metal gods. But what we need to see is that every desire that we put above God is idolatry. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, explains it this way. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that if you would lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. What we desire, close quote, what we desire the most what we deem is we absolutely need to be happy 
is the thing that controls us and has become our functional God. And we serve in worship that which we value the most. And just a little bit later in, in this chapter, in Luke 12, 34, Jesus says this, for where your treasure is, where the things you value, where they, where they are, there will your heart be also. Let us ask ourselves, what are our functional gods? What are the things that we dwell on or get defensive and angry about when we don't get them? Or maybe here's another uh, question that we can ask ourselves to help diagnose. And I would say these kind of questions are good to ask to yourselves regularly, and it's really good to ask in the community of believers to get other people's insights. Let's ask, I'm sorry. It is this, I'm sorry, I missed me reading my notes. Ask your heart, if you just get X, I'll be happy, okay? If I can just get this thing, fill in the blank, I will be happy. If I can just get my kids to behave well, I'll be happy. If I could just get that promotion, if I could just have neighbors that didn't bother me, if I could just have a spouse that would listen to me, if I could just have um, people who appreciated me, if I just had teachers who loved me, if I just had X, I will be happy. I would submit here that whatever X is for you, that is your functional God. And listen, Functional gods do not give us real life, but only detract and hollow us out. You know, one old theologian once said, the human heart is an idle factory. And Jesus' warning should tell us to be on guard and careful because we are in danger of falling into the suede of this idol. In verse 15, he says, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. The idea here is to take care, is to look closely and be careful, then be diligently guarding against covetousness. So that's the idea of like, um, if, you have, if you're in a military and you're guarding your outpost or guarding your camp, you're like, well, it's my job to guard, so I go out and guard between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m., oh, I'm done guarding. You walk away, and then the enemy comes and invades at 4 a.m. Like, but I was on guard. Well, you kind of need to be on guard all the time. I just want to encourage us to soberly take Jesus' warning here. If we think we have no problem with greed, that might not indicate our holiness, but our blindness instead. And listen, Jesus is not telling us that he, he, Jesus is not being a killjoy here. Greed and jealousy and love of money kills us. It does not give us life. You know, some corners of our culture would say the more stuff you get, the more vehicles you have, the more this, the more that, the more success, whatever it may be, your life will be better. 
And at this point, it would be very easy just to delve into all the materialism that our Western culture kind of promotes and push. But I think we will be maybe not quite getting to the point or missing the point of where Jesus is going if we just only focus on that. In verse 15, life is far more than stuff. Yes. But we need to be on guard against something deeper than that. Unless we should probably take Jesus' cue on that. You see, Jesus does not merely warn about warn, but he goes to explain his warning in a parable. You see, greed and covetousness is the, the, the surface idol. If you could imagine greed and covetousness like a tree, that's kind of like the trunk of the tree or the branches. That's the stuff we see. And maybe that's the stuff that bears the good or the bad fruit. But you know what really undergirds the tree? The roots. And Jesus gets down to the root of the problem of covetousness and greed in his explanation in verses 16 through 19. Through this parable, and this is our second point, Jesus' explanation in 16 through 19. Through this parable, Jesus shows us what is the real danger for those who are enslaved to the love of money. He does this through a contrast. He does this through revealing the thoughts of the heart. And he does this through revealing the root desires. Let's read in verse 16. And he's told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produces plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Verse 18. And he said, I will do this, and I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, So you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. So let's first look at the contrast here. Remember the guy that came to Jesus from the crowd. This guy's kind of coming from a position of not having money and asking for money. In the parable, Jesus kind of talks about somebody in a totally opposite situation. We see a guy who is a wealthy person, somebody who's already well off and probably is powerful. And what happened is that he gets an unexpectedly good crop. I think Jesus wants to communicate to us something here. The man who is asking for money because he feels like he needs it desperately, and the man who has plenty of money, and we'll see, holds on to that money, those two men have the same problem. You see, it doesn't matter if you have a million dollars in the bank or no money in the bank. What matters is the condition of your heart. Jesus is not calling us to make an evaluation purely based on material status. Rather, he wants us to see our heart is what our heart is saying and if we are going to love money more than him. I want you to see here how Jesus describes the inner workings of an idolater here. Pay close attention to who, he, who this man, the rich man, thinks gave him his wealth. 
which in turn determines what his priorities are and ultimately determines what he does with his wealth. Look in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produces plentiful. Notice, Jesus said that the land produces plentiful. Jesus did not say this guy found this new, found abundant wealth because he was cheating. He did not say that um, it was his own wit and, uh, that gave him this wealth. It's probably safe to say that this is a blessing from God. It is a blessing from God to have a bumper crop. Full stop. It is a blessing from God. And notice also this man was already wealthy like we said. He's not some hard scrapping, sharecropping, struggling farmer trying to make a living, but a relatively wealthy and maybe even powerful guy who has unexpectedly got all this money. And like I said, this is probably not the problem, but we start to see the problem when Jesus starts to reveal what he's thinking. Man, if, if, if Jesus did that to us, kind of opened our minds so that other people can hear, we will either be terribly embarrassed or terribly embarrassed and hopefully repent. So Jesus is showing this in a contrast. And then this is where he starts to see the um, thoughts of the heart. Look down verse 17. Pay close attention to how this guy thinks. And he, the rich man, thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, and be merry. Let me ask you, who is in the center of this guy's universe? Self, right? He is in the center of his universe. If there's one word that can summarize this guy's attitude, it is selfishness. His whole life was about himself. And finding his identity in his own pleasure. And living out his best dreams. He fully embraced the idea that we can find true happiness in life and fulfilling our flesh and enjoying it to the fullest. You know, I heard a preacher say uh, last week when we were in D.C. that when we give in to the love of money, it's like giving the keys of our life to Satan, to drive us wherever he wills. And I would say if we have a heart posture of selfishness, it's kind of like opening the doors to our car, taking the keys, putting the ignition, turning it on, putting the hazard lights on, putting a big sign saying, Satan, you're welcome here, drive me where you want. You see, the love of money always starts with selfishness and pride. It has been said that pride is the root of all sin. I've heard that many, many times, and I think that's a profound and true statement. And it's very insightful. 
But what I'm afraid is that as we say this to each other all the time, oh, your struggle is your pride, brother, you need to repent. Or sister, I think we're tempted to maybe not dig a little deeper. Yes, the pride is the root of all sin. But we need to ask, what is my pride aiming for? You see, Jesus, like any good doctor, does not just settle to ask surface-level questions, get a simple diagnosis, but he steps back and explains the root causes of the sin illness of covetousness. Look at what the rich fool says in verse 19 to himself. And I will say to my soul, my soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. If we just put it in today's terms, it's like, I have all that I need to live my life in pleasure. I'm going to be able to collect seashells, you know, in my retirement and not worry about things. I can live the American dream, enjoy good things. I don't have to worry about all these problems. I can just live my life. The days are easy, and I have begun to live my life. But there's a root desire here. What is the root of this man's love for money and selfishness and pride? It is self-centered pleasure, comfort, and ease. You may have heard somebody say something to this effect. I just want enough money so that I don't have to worry about anything. There's people with billions of dollars that still worry about a lot of stuff. Well, it's good to have your ducks in a row. Good to plan ahead. Maybe even to save and consider uh, how to budget. Those are good things. But if we think our investments and our money can provide lasting life and happiness, we are believing in a falsehood. And I want to caution you here, because at this point, I might be tempted to check out. Please don't be hasty and think, well, that's nice, but that doesn't quite fit my situation. Listen, our deceitful desires in our hearts are really good at covering up our motivations. Um, Tim Keller, again, points to this in his book, uh, Counterfix God. And this is kind of a long quote. So buckle up, but packed inside this quote is some truth that I think if we let it seep down into our hearts, there will be a lot of doors and windows open to us, and we're going to see places where God really has been wanting to change us. I start here. Sin in our hearts affects our basic motivational drives. That's enough there to chew on for a long time. Some people are strongly motivated by influence and power, while others are motivated by approval and appreciation. Some want emotional and physical comfort more than anything else. Others want security and the control of their, their environment. People with deep idol of power do not mind being unpopular to gain influence. People who are most motivated by approval are the opposite. They gladly lose power and control as long as everyone thinks well of them. Each 
deep idol, power, approval, comfort, or control generates a different set of fears and hopes. Surface idols are the things like money, spouse, children, through which our deep idols seek fulfillment. We're often superficial in our analysts of our idol structures. For example, money can be a surface idol that serves to satisfy more fundamental influences. Some people want lots of money as a way to control the world and life, and such people usually don't spend much money, and they live very modestly. They keep it all safely saved and invested so that they can feel comfortable completely safe in the world. Others want money for um, access to social circles and make themselves feel beautiful and attractive. These people do spend their money on themselves in lavish ways. Other people want money because it gives them so much power over others. In every case, money functions as an idol, and yet because of the various deep idols, it results in different patterns of behavior. The person using money to serve a deep idol of control will often feel superior to others and use money to obtain power or social approval. In every case, however, money idolatry enslaves and distorts life. We need to hear Jesus' word and look closely at our lives. If we don't, we will suffer from the most common side effect of greed, short-sightedness. Greed encourages us, seduces us, and controls us in such a way that we are focused on this life now. It's about these 70 to 80 years now. That's what greed makes us focus on. And Jesus wants to correct this way of thinking in our last point. Jesus' correction, this is in verse 20 through 21. In verse 20 we read, But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. So what does it matter if we have a vacation house and six cars and a nest egg that could sink a ship? So what if we save and live really frugally and provide ourselves with security and maybe a sense of superiority? Jesus says those who live in this way and love money and self are fools. Now, to kind of get the, like, the force behind this phrase fool, imagine yourself on I-65 going north late on a Friday afternoon. And if you know I-65 on a late on a Friday afternoon, you know like a bazillion cars are coming south. Okay, all going down to Branson to get out of Springfield, I guess. I don't know. Um, and, you know, I love the hills on 65 going down to Branson. Like, those are crazy. Like, we don't have that in Georgia. Um, it's something unique to, uh, that I've never experienced before. Imagine as you were going up the hill, you're seeing, like, you know, 100 cars coming down the hill. And then you're dist- in the distance, you see somebody on the shoulder of the road, and they start to walk out in front of the traffic. Not run, 
just moseying across that traffic as, you know, cars are going 60, 70, 80 miles per hour down that hill. Let me ask you, what are the names and thoughts that come into your head when you see somebody doing something like that? You don't have to blur them out loud. Listen, that is the kind of foolishness that Jesus says we are doing when we make our lives about money and self. No matter if you've got $5 in the bank or $500,000 in the bank account, if you set your hopes and dreams on getting or keeping wealth, we are like that guy crossing I-65, and it's only a matter of time before we get hit and our, we die and our idols die with us. Maybe you're not a Christian here, you're just wondering about the faith. Listen, Jesus came to save us from our functional idols. Because they do not bring life. Rather, Jesus would have us see that our wealth is not meant to stroke our selfish, prideful hearts, but is meant to be used for his kingdom. Look back in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and not riches towards God. See, Jesus starts uh, his correction with this man in the crowd by saying, listen, there is no life in the abundance of stuff. And then he ends his corrections uh, with, lay your treasure up in heaven. This idea of life is pervasive throughout the Gospels and Scripture, to be honest with you. Uh, probably if I had, could pick one book that it's like the most talked about and centered on is the book of John. And Jesus talks about this towards the book of John. You see, life, the idea of life is like, what is the purpose? What is the meaning? What is the thing we find joy in? What is the point of we being here? And Jesus is saying, listen, you trying to find your purpose in the love of stuff, enjoying those functional God, you will only find death. But that asks us the question. That asks the question, what is life? I can find nowhere better than in, in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. That you know, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, in whom you have sent. We can have life because Jesus came, laid down his life, paid for our sins of all of our functional gods that we try to find enjoyment in, paid that, died, rose again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we can have forgiveness of all of that self-centeredness, and God gives us life. That's the point of Christianity. And as we close, I just want you to think about that gospel, how it impacts your life, and then think about the ways you, you can respond. Now, there are three ways I want us to think about uh, the ways that we can respond. We can respond like a Pharisee. Remember, a Pharisee, the religious leader, they're going to look at the surface level uh, command and ignore the heart. They're going to say, you know what? I need to give more. I need to be so less selfish. I just give more and give more, but not do it 
out of love. And honestly, if we don't do it out of love, I promise you, it will be turned into pride. Well, maybe we could take it kind of like Judas did and ignore God's warning. Later on in Luke, we see that out of the love of money, Judas sold Jesus to death. So don't be like Judas. Don't ignore God's warning here. And lastly, and hopefully this is more the direction we go, we could take it like the Apostle Paul. In 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, and in verses 17 through 19, he says this, starting in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we were brought we are brought, I'm sorry, for we were brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, those are hard kind of words, through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then we skip down to 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be prideful, Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it corrects us. I thank you that it points us to you. God, I thank you that you laid down your life and did not consider the riches of this world something to be gained, but rather you lived for your Father's will. And we are blessed by that. God, there's so many people here that are in different situations. Um, as far as their budgets and money go, God, wherever we're at, we know that you know our needs. Help us to trust you in that and seek first the kingdom and everything else will be given unto us because, God, you are a good father that loves his children. You don't give snakes for gifts, but you give good things. Help us to put away idols whether they be the top surface ones or the, or the deep ones, help us to be open and honest and give us the strength by the Holy Spirit to submit to you and find life and peace and obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.